Hello and welcome to the first meeting of the English Learners Book Club. Glad to have you with us. In this episode, we'll be discussing A Study in Scarlet by Arthur Conan Doyle. If you haven't done so already, you can listen to a free audiobook of the first chapter in an earlier episode of the podcast. You can also find vocab lists and other resources at our website, englishlearnersbookclub.wordpress.com, and keep up to date with us on Instagram at elb underscore podcast. If you haven't read the book yet, don't worry. You can learn a little background information here first, and I'll warn you before we reveal any spoilers. Without much further ado, let's get started. A Study in Scarlet was first published in 1887. It is the first of four novels to feature the now infamous detective Sherlock Holmes, who also appeared in over 50 short stories. I'm sure you've already come across one of the many modern adaptations featuring Sherlock Holmes, perhaps those starring Benedict Cumberbatch or Robert Downey Jr. While some of these adaptations modernised the story to the present day, Conan Doyle's Sherlock lived in Victorian-era London, the same period at which the stories were first written. The Victorian era describes a period of 63 years, between 1837 and 1901, which were marked by the reign of Queen Victoria over the British Empire. It was a period when cities grew rapidly and London became the most highly populated city in the whole world. Many Londoners lived in crowded and dirty areas called slums, and there was a huge divide between rich and poor in the city. The era also saw an increase in crime, from theft and burglary all the way up to murder. It's no wonder, then, that detective fiction thrived during the Victorian period, and Sherlock Holmes was to become the most famous detective of all. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was born in Victorian-era Edinburgh to parents of Irish Catholic descent. He studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh and was keenly interested in the human body. One of his lecturers at medical school, Joseph Bell, helped to provide the inspiration for the character of Sherlock Holmes. Bell shared many qualities with Holmes, in particular his powers of observation and deduction. Wherever Sherlock Holmes appears, his trusty sidekick John Watson is also sure to be found. A study in Scarlet shows this famous duo meeting for the very first time. John is a surgeon in the army who has recently returned from Afghanistan, with whom England had been at war in the late 1800s. When he returns to England, he is in search of a place to live, and an old friend introduces him to Sherlock Holmes. After their introduction, the pair move in together in a flat at 221B Baker Street. John is also our narrator for most of the story, but more on that later. From the very start, Watson witnesses Sherlock's impressive powers of deduction. Holmes is immediately able to deduce by sight that Watson had been in Afghanistan, leaving Watson confused and bewildered. He soon discovers that these are the skills that Sherlock uses in his profession as a consulting detective. He uses powers of deduction to notice every important detail and to solve the crimes that others cannot. He has a vast knowledge of the practical, but does not waste his time with any unnecessary or impractical information which is unlikely to help him with his work. He knows little of the solar system or philosophy, for example, but his knowledge of chemistry and anatomy are profound. Lestrade and Gregson are among the detectives who rely on Sherlock for help with their cases. They are detectives in Scotland Yard, the headquarters of the London Police Force. One day they call on Holmes with a new case, and the study in Scarlet begins. The novel is divided into two parts, of seven chapters each. 
The first part is entirely narrated by John Watson and charts his meeting with Holmes, the entry of Gregson and Lestrade, and the initial investigation into a murder case. Sherlock is sent a letter from Gregson detailing the crime scene, an open door to an empty house where the body of the first victim, Enoch J. Drebber, is found. There is blood on the walls but no indication where it came from, and there are no wounds on Drebber's body. Intrigued, Sherlock and Watson head to the scene of the crime, where Sherlock hopes to find more information. We witness firsthand Sherlock's approach to the case, taking in information from the street, along the path towards the house, and even going so far as to measure the distance between footprints that only he seems to see. This is all information that Gregson has left out of his letter, because he either did not notice it or did not see its importance, but which turn out to be essential to the case. Upon leaving, Sherlock shares some of his information with the police, who seem confused at how much he has learned from so few clues. As he walks out of the door, he informs Gregson and Lestrade that the word they assumed to be the beginning of the name Rachel was Rache, the German word for revenge. Sherlock, aside from being aware of the smallest details and able to form theories out of nothing, is also clearly somewhat of a linguist. The police find themselves on the wrong track when they quickly suspect Joseph Stangerson, Drebber's business partner, of the crime. That is, until he too turns up dead. This seems to throw a spanner in the works for the police, but for Sherlock it only confirms what he has already believed to be the case. In fact, while Lestrade is telling the others about Stangerson's death, Sherlock has already put into action a plan to catch the real killer at the end of the first part of the novel. The second part of the book provides a dramatic shift. We switch from first-person to third-person omniscient narration, and the action is transported from Victorian London to the American frontier, the expanding and growing border of the United States. This half of the book serves as a background to the murders and explains the motives behind them. The 19th century saw the westward expansion of America by migrants sometimes referred to as pioneers. The movement west was fueled by the gold rush, the availability of land, and the promise of a better life in the West. Certain pioneers were also drawn by Manifest Destiny. Manifest Destiny was the 19th century belief, held by certain Americans, that the United States were destined by God to expand across the whole continent of North America. American expansion led to a war with Mexico, and it was used also to justify taking land previously occupied by Native Americans. It also fueled debates on slavery, which ultimately led to the outbreak of the American Civil War. Among the many groups traveling west were the Mormons, or members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Mormons traveled west to escape persecution and harsh treatment, after their founder, Joseph Smith, was murdered in 1844. With a new leader, Brigham Young, they traveled along a 2,100-kilometer route from Illinois to Utah, now referred to as the Mormon Trail, before settling at the Great Salt Lake in 1847. To this day, the headquarters of the church is located in Salt Lake City, Utah. A study in Scarlet has been criticized for its depiction of Mormonism, a depiction which is far from flattering. Before I get into that, though, it's time for a spoiler warning. I'm about to reveal some details about the mystery at the heart of the novel, so if you haven't read it yet and you don't want to know what happens, switch off for now and come back when you've read it. In the second half of the book, we are introduced to John Ferrier and his adoptive daughter Lucy. 
They are the last remaining survivors of a larger group who were travelling west, showing just how dangerous the journey could be. Both are near to death when they are rescued by a group of Mormons. The group will not offer them food, water or shelter, however, until they accept the Mormon religion. While John does not see the problem with such an agreement at the time, his decision comes back to haunt him later. John and Lucy Ferrier settle with the Mormons in Salt Lake City. His practical and hard-working nature win him success and wealth and place him among the wealthiest in the city. However, his refusal to fully conform to the Mormon way of living sets Ferrier apart from his new neighbours. In particular, he refuses to marry, while most Mormon men have more than one wife. Arthur Conan Doyle portrays Mormonism as a polygamist, closed, and even murderous society. Polygamy is when someone marries more than one partner. The real Mormons also practiced plural marriage, and were persecuted as a result. It was considered illegal, and therefore the United States tried to put an end to it. When the Mormons resisted, many were jailed, while others had little choice but to go into hiding. Laws were introduced which greatly reduced the rights and power of the church, and eventually, in 1890, the church president prayed for guidance and announced an end to the polygamy. Lucy Ferrier grows up to become a beautiful and popular young woman, but she does not fall in love with any of her Mormon neighbours. She meets a prospector on the outskirts of the city, a man named Jefferson Hope. Prospectors came to the Wild West in search of precious materials, such as gold or silver, in the hopes of striking rich. One summer's evening, Lucy agrees to leave Salt Lake City with Jefferson Hope when he returns again to take her away with him. If their story had ended here, we could say they lived happily ever after. Unfortunately, though, a fictional version of Mormon leader Brigham Young pays a visit to the Ferrier household one evening. He accuses John Ferrier of neglecting his commitment to the Mormon faith. He has heard rumours of Lucy's engagement to a non-Mormon or Gentile. He demands that she marry either Dreber or Stangerson instead, and gives her one month to make the choice between them. Over the course of the next month, Ferrier receives a series of mysterious threats reminding him of the looming deadline. With little time to spare, Jefferson Hope returns and helps the Ferriers to escape. Whilst hiding out in the wilderness, Hope leaves them in search of food. Upon his return, however, his companions are nowhere to be seen, and in their place he finds the freshly dug grave of John Ferrier. He returns to the outskirts of the city, where he meets a Mormon and learns that Lucy had been married to Dreber. Lucy never recovers from the heartbreak and anguish of the horrific action taken against her father and herself. A month later, she is dead, and Jefferson Hope vows to take revenge. He follows Dreber and Stangerson throughout the world, all the way to London, where our story continues. The story then reverts back to the present day, where Sherlock has caught and apprehended the killer, Jefferson Hope. Hope doesn't reveal the whole story of why he killed Dreber and Stangerson, but he confesses to the crime and briefly explains that the men were responsible for the deaths of a father and a daughter two decades previous. He explains how he committed the murder, that he picked up a drunken Dreber in his taxi and gave him poison at the house on Brixton Road, where the police eventually discovered the body. The word Rache, written on the wall in blood, was nothing but a red herring, a false clue which he had hoped would confuse and mislead the police. He wanted Stangerson to take the poison too, but when Stangerson attacked him, Hope stabbed him in self-defense. After making this confession, he is taken away to prison, but before he can be tried for his crimes in court, he dies of a heart problem. Sherlock explains to John how he cracked the case and identified the murderer. 
he explains that he reasoned backwards. He looked at the result and worked to uncover the steps which led up to it. Upon visiting the crime scene, he took note of cab mark and footprints and types of soil and worked out that the cab driver must have entered the house with Drebber. He then examined the body itself. Smelling poison on the dead man's lips, he is able to deduce the cause of death. Next, though, he must work out the reason behind the murder. He concludes that it could not have been a robbery, as nothing was taken, and therefore considers whether it could have been politically or romantically motivated. Immediately, he suspects the latter. These suspicions are confirmed by the discovery of a ring. By contacting the American police, Sherlock is informed of the rivalry between Drebber and a man named Jefferson Hope. All that remains is locating him. He deduces that Hope must have been the cab driver and employs some local youth to help him to locate the man. It is they who bring Jefferson Hope to 221B Baker Street, where he is apprehended by the police. Watson is thoroughly impressed by his companion's detective skills. He is all the more annoyed, then, that Gregson and Lestrade receive all the credit for cracking the case, while none goes to Sherlock Holmes. He vows to set the record straight and to put the facts in writing in his journal, the account that we have now all had the pleasure of reading. <laughs>